Hey, my name is Ryan McVitie, and I am the pastor of the River Worship. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. If you haven't heard about the river yet, it's an amazing move of God happening in the greater Toronto area. Yes, Toronto, Canada. It's a cold place, but we have warm hearts, and we love coming together every Tuesday night and worshiping the Lord with all we've got. We also get to dive into the Word, and that's where we're going to go right now. We're going to dive into the Word of God, and I trust and pray that it will impact you in a powerful way. If you're ever in the Toronto area, come visit us. We would love for you to worship with us together. But enjoy the message, and God bless you. It's Hebrews 12.12. How about that? 12.12. That's a good one to remember. So take a new grip. Come on, somebody say new grip. Say it like you're a preacher. New grip. grip. Yeah, we got a couple thousand preachers in here tonight. I like that. So take a new grip with your tired hands. Anyone got some tired hands tonight? Just been trying and trying. And how about this one? Take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Anyone got some weak knees? I know, I know this is just, this is a spiritual moment, but I'm a soccer player. I got some real weak knees now. I need that new grip. Anyone want that new grip? I believe that is what the Lord is going to give you tonight. So before you take your seat, help me out. Help me preach it. Look to your neighbor, your first overall draft pick, number one overall. You don't have to give them a big contract. You do have to sit with them for the next hour, though, so choose wisely. And tell them the title of the message tonight, which is about to come up on the screen. Tell them this. What do you hold? Oh, come on. Come on, preachers. What do you hold? That was better. And last thing, go to your second overall pick. Second ain't bad, guys. You know, it's a little rude what you did. But it's not bad. You got them? And say, you look good tonight. You just, bro, sis, you look good. What is your skincare regimen? You got a glow, like a Holy Spirit glow on you or something. Sit down. Look to your neighbor and say, sit down. That was a joke. You weren't supposed to say that. You're just, just supposed to sit down. But I like it. That's cool. We got some people that are ready. You ready to get in the Word? Amen. All right. Well, before we get to that, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, and the surrounding scripture around it, I want to take you somewhere, somewhere very, very important, and it's not really preached on a lot. I want to take you to the true spiritual battleground of 2023. The real battleground, and in fact, it's nothing new. It was the first spiritual battleground of all time. The ultimate battle between heaven and hell, Savior and Satan, forsaken and Father, the ultimate battle that rages on. You would think, especially those of you that speak Christianese, you know my church people? Christianese, it's not racist, it's a language. Don't look at me like that. Christianese. Um... You would think that the real spiritual battleground would be for your heart, right? Because you know that your creator longs for your heart. You know that the enemy longs to not have your heart go to your creator, and that's all true. Or you might think that the real first spiritual battleground is for your soul. 
Because that is true. The enemy wants your soul to burn for eternity, and your father wants your soul to be saved for eternity in paradise with him. That's a big dichotomy. Those are very different outcomes. Don't forget that. But that's not the first true spiritual battleground. The first true spiritual battleground is more simple. It's this. What holds your attention? What holds your attention? It's the first spiritual battle that ever occurred. Anyone remember a place called the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? So if you know the story, I won't recap for you, but there was this tree called the knowledge of good and evil. And it was the one thing, just the one thing that Adam and Eve weren't supposed to do. And then a battle rages. A character enters into the story and history of humanity, first called the serpent. You know the serpent? And a battle for Eve's attention now occurs. Does Eve give her attention to her maker? the one who gave her dominion over all of the land with just one simple restriction? Or does she give her attention to the serpent who says, God's just a stingy God. He doesn't want you to be like him. That's why he said, don't eat that fruit. Don't go to that tree. Eve's first, and I would put it to you, biggest mistake was not necessarily that she took the bite of that fruit. It was that she was talking to something so far beneath her that she had no business talking to. She gave her attention to the enemy and not to the maker. Make no mistake, my friends. Yeah, you can give the Lord a praise for that. We can clap in church. Make no mistake, my friends. That same battle rages tonight when you get in bed and you turn this thing on before you go to sleep. It rages tomorrow morning in your conversations, in your choices, and where you go. It is all about what holds your attention. Because hear me when I say this, whatever holds your attention will eventually hold you. Whatever holds your attention soon, maybe not as long as you think, will eventually hold you. This is a lesson I learned in life the hard way. I learned the lesson worded a little different. I learned the lesson like this, but it means the same thing. Wherever you look, you will go. Wherever you look, you ultimately will go. Um, anyone here ever heard of a bobsled? Hands? Jamaica got a bobsled team? Pastor AJ? Canada does too, but no one cares about them. They're not cool. Jamaica bobsled, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Bobsleds are kind of scary because they go down an ice path, path, racetrack, trail, I don't know what they call it. And they go down it very, very fast. But a bobsled really ain't that bad because you've got this metal frame around you. And if you crash and hit the wall, at least you have something to protect you. I did something different years ago. I did it with my dad, who's sitting right up here on the front row. Have, has anyone here ever heard of something called a skeleton? A skeleton? It's two blades that they put on the ice, two long blades, with this skinny little plank above it, and they say, hey, go get on that thing and go down the racetrack. What? I asked the guy, why, why do you call it a skeleton? Because you just pray that that's not how you end up at the end of the run. 
A skeleton. I'm not sure if that was a joke or real life. It felt like it. Anyways, I love thrills. I'm a thrill seeker. I love things fast. So I was excited about this. I think my dad was less excited, but he's a good dad. So he was doing it with me. And I get all prepped and you get all ready. And you got to understand, on a skeleton, you go in speeds in excess of 100 kilometers an hour. And you're like, Psh, I do that on the 401 every day. <laughs> yeah, you do in a car. On a skeleton, you go head first down the track with your face six inches off of the ice and this skinny little helmet on your head. Anyways, sounded great to me. I wanted to do it. So I go and we go to this place, Lake Placid, New York. The Winter Olympics were there. They got a skeleton track. They have a bobsled track. It's the same track. And I get all prepped and we get all ready and we get the gear and we get on there and I'm ready to go. I'm excited. And you know, you get to that last minute and you're like, maybe I'm not excited about this anymore. Maybe this wasn't the best idea. And then a thought goes in my head. I'm like, I don't know how to steer this thing. So I asked the instructor, I asked the guy, I'm like, hey, bro, I think we forgot something. Like, where's the brake? Where's the steering wheel? Like, you got those cables in a bobsled. Like, how do I steer this thing? He said, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Wherever you look, you will go. Don't get philosophical with me. I'm about to die here. How do I steer this thing? And he said, no, trust me, Ryan. When you see a turn coming up to the right, you're going face forward, look to the right, and you'll be amazed your sled, your skeleton will turn to the right. Sounded like he was smoking the ganja to me, but I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'll do it. I'll try. Let's do it. I go, I get up to the first turn. I look to the right. Guess what? Skeleton goes to the right. I look to the left. Guess what? Skeleton goes to the left. Goes great. I get down to the, the, the uh, lodge and they have these cameras and I see my dad getting on the skeleton. I don't think he was looking to the right or to the left because he's hitting every wall, left and right, all the way down. He made it. He's still here today. But the principle proved true. And it's the same in life. Where you look, you will ultimately go. Why? Because where you look determines your direction. Try riding a bicycle while you're looking left. Try, don't try this because you'll sue me. Try driving your car out of the parking lot tonight, looking backwards through the rear view mirror. Wherever you look, you will ultimately go because where you look determines your direction. And hear this, your direction always determines your destination. You cannot get in your car and drive east and get to Vancouver. I don't care if it's 2023 or not, you can't. That just doesn't happen. You can't drive west and end up in Halifax. Your direction will always determine your destination. My friends, what I look at the most, or let's put it this way, what I hold on to the most, what holds my attention the most, will always ultimately, ultimately end up becoming the thing that I worship. And it's the same for you. I'm not the only broken one. The thing that you hold, the thing that you allow to hold your attention the most is what you will ultimately worship. If if you look for the approval of man, and you look at the approval of man the most, you judge things by like how many likes they get, how many followers they have, how much money he makes, how much money she has, how much fame they have. If you look to that all day, you will eventually worship that. I promise you. 
It's human psyche. It's what happens. The thing that you hold in the highest priority in your life ends up being the thing that you will worship. So why am I saying all this? Because I want you to understand something as we get into this teaching tonight. That your attention is the gateway to your heart. I said the first battleground was your attention. The ultimate destination battleground is your heart. But the gateway to your heart is through your eyes. It's what holds your attention. It's where you are looking at. And that is the thing that the enemy will fight for the most. Because he knows if he can hold your attention, he has a chance. If your attention is on your maker, on your Lord, on your Savior, he has zero chance of thwarting the plans that God has for you. That's just a promise in the Word of God, and that's just a truth. I promise you that. So he knows and he battles and he wants to get your attention. He is happy if your attention is on anything but God and his work. Anything that can get you away from God and his work. It's why, friends, we need to test what holds our attention. We have to test closely what in our lives is holding our attention. What do we place in the highest priority when it comes to our attention? And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 puts it briefly and beautifully. It says, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good and abhor what is evil. But test everything. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to do a little test. Because I have found in my life that there are five areas. Look to your neighbor and say five. Look to your neighbor and say it better. Five. There are five areas in our lives that the enemy loves, loves to have hold your attention. Because he knows if he can keep you on these five things. And I'm not talking TikTok, okay? I'm not talking reels. I'm talking real life stuff sneaky stuff, important, deep stuff that he wants to hold your attention instead of your attention being on your father and his goodness and his grace. Here's the first one. You ready? You ready? Here's the first one. He wants to keep your attention on your past failure. He loves when you sit and think and and almost get to a point where you are obsessed with your failures. Let me tell you something about failures. We all have them. In fact, if we found the most successful person in this room tonight, I bet you they would have the most failures. Failure in 2023 is taught like it's such a bad thing, but hear me when I say this. Failure, my friends, there's a choice. It can be the greatest professor in your life, or it can be the greatest regressor in your life. It can be the thing that propels you to greatness, or it can keep, be the thing that keeps you down in the dumps for the rest of your life. But failure is not always a bad thing. Learning how not to do something is a good thing. Thomas Edison, you ever heard of him? He said this. He said, I didn't fail 10,000 times. He said, I found 10,000 ways not to do it so that I could find the one. You know what the one was? That light bulb, pretty big invention, makes him notorious in all of history. Failure is not always a bad thing, but the devil wants to hold your attention on failure. And then hear this, wants to take you one step further. He wants you to believe that your failure is final. 
He wants you to believe that if you have failed, that's it. The exam is done, and an F will be on your forehead for the rest of your life. But friends, you've got to understand that failure is not final. It's just a required stop on the journey of life. You don't get anywhere without failure. Failure is just a stop that you've got to go through. And guess what? Look to your neighbor and say, guess what? Come on, say, guess what? Guess what? The devil did not begin your story, and the devil certainly does not get to end your story. The devil is not the alpha, and that certainly means that he is not the omega. He doesn't get to decide if it's final. You don't even get to decide if it's final. He gets to decide if it's final. So you can't let the enemy hold you there. And some of you are like, yeah, yeah, whatever. No, no, no. Your mind loves to dwell on your past failure, on the things that you have done wrong, the ways that you have fallen short. But how foolish would it be if we were to hold on to a stepping stone for the rest of our life and call it our final destination? And some people do. They grip that stepping stone that was never meant to be anything more than that. It's a stepping stone. It's not final. Here's the second thing. Look to your neighbor and say, offense. Ooh, 2023, the year of offense. We live in an age today, my friends, where pretty much everything is offensive. Let's be honest. Pretty much everything today is offensive. It's the thing that we hold on most. It's the most popular traded com commodity in our society today. It's the name of the game, offense. I like to put it this way. It's the enemy's 407 tool route where you pay over and above with an express route to bitterness and bondage. And it costs a lot to ride the 407 these days. Anybody notice that? It ain't cheap, but it gets you there quick. That's what offense will do. It ain't cheap, it'll cost you a lot, but it will get you to bitterness and bondage very, very fast, my friends. The enemy wants you to hold on to offense and clinch it tight and never let it go because people have offended you. And guess what? People will still offend you. It's going to happen, but the enemy wants you to hold on to it. And I find it so crazy about us Christians. Christians, we are the most offendable people on the planet. I mean, we are offended by everything. And I find that really wild when we have a Savior who took every single offense that we ever did, and he laid them all down, and he dropped them on the cross for you and for me. That's wild. But we are offendable people today. It's such an easy thing to focus on. If you don't believe me, think back in your life. There has been times where someone has said 99 nice things to you. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I know. I, what? And they say one thing after the 99. Just one thing. And it's not even really that mean. But it's just one thing that is offensive. Guess what you're going to think about for the next four days? You're not going to think about the 99 nice things that he said about you. You're going to think about the one thing. The haircut wasn't even that bad. What was he saying? That's terrible. Some of us need new barbers. It's so easy to focus. And guys, I used to be like this my whole life. I'll admit that to you. I was so easily offended. I mean, I'll give you an example. A few months ago, someone up, came up to me and they said something. It was actually really nice. They said, Ryan. Pastor Ryan, you have grown so much as a preacher. That's a nice thing to say. I should be happy about that. Growth is a good thing. 
You know where my mind went? What, you saying I wasn't a good preacher at some time? <laughs> growing? What do you mean growing? Was I not growing before? But how ridiculous of a response is that from me? Let's be honest. To grow is a good thing. You want to not grow? That's a bad thing. And then I felt the Lord convicting me and saying something to me. And he said this to me. He said, Ryan, you want to know why you're so unhappy? It's because you're so easily offended. You hold on to offense and then you're surprised that you're not happy? That's what we do, though, in 2023. Proverbs chapter 18, it's going to come up on the screen, puts it like this. A brother or a sister, for that matter, offended is more unyielding than a strong city. Strong cities have walls. And quarreling is like the bars of a castle. That's the prison. What Proverbs, the book of wisdom, is telling you is that when you are offended, when you hold on to offense, you put yourself in a prison. God did not design you to live in a prison. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Amen? He did not design you to sit in a prison of offense, but when you hold on to offense, it happens. Look to your neighbor and say, drop it. Drop it. You got some offenses you got to drop. Married people, look to your spouse and say, drop it. I'm helping some married people out. I made sure that I didn't look at Lindsay when I said that, my wife. Sometimes, y'all, you just got to drop it. Offense is part of life and it's not going anywhere. People say dumb things. Men, that's our specialty, is saying dumb things. Some sister just said, yep, real loud, right there. We say dumb things. It's our forte. It's our specialty. Sometimes you got to learn just to drop it because offense is a fact of life. But hear me when I say this. Offense is a fact of life. Offended is a choice. It's not a necessity. It's a choice. You will have people come to you with an offense. But if you want to be offended by it, that's a choice. I have a choice. Now when someone says I've grown as a preacher, I say, thank you. That's so kind. I really appreciate that. It's a nice thing. You have a choice if you want to be offended, guys. When we hold on to offense we, and we collect them, what it ends up doing is it builds a fence between us and our brothers and our sisters and our boyfriends and our girlfriends, our husbands and our wives and the people that God has called us to love. Sometimes you just got to learn to drop it to not let it hold your attention. Because the enemy is happy when offense holds your, attention, holds your attention. Here's the third one, correction. Anyone here love to be corrected? <laughs> Crickets, that's what I thought. One wise man right there. Woman, who are you? Sorry, right there. She loves to be corrected. She's got it figured out. That's a good thing. We hold on to correction, though, these days with utter detest. We hate to be corrected in church, by friends, in public, being corrected by your kids, y'all. That's the worst. My kid's 14 months and he's already correcting me. My mom is waving her hand high in the air and I don't know why and I don't appreciate it, but she's waving her hand. Being corrected by your kids is the worst, but we hold on to correction. But friends, let me tell you this. Embracing correction is actually the thing that separates amateurs from professionals. Amateurs loathe correction. They hate it. They view it as an attack. Professionals, they love correction. In fact, they want correction. In fact, they pay for correction. Anyone here ever heard of Tiger Woods? Let me see your hand. You heard of Tiger Woods? 
what rock do you live under if your hand is not up right now? I mean, this is the greatest golfer of all time. This is the greatest golfer without a doubt of all time. Tiger Woods, when he was ranked number one in the world, which by the way was for eight straight years on pressing he paid someone to stand behind him for six hours a day and correct him. He's the number one golfer in the world. What could anyone tell him to make him better? There's no one better at it than him. But he didn't loathe correction. He actually loved it and wants that correction. Michael Jordan did the same thing. Thousand jump shots every single morning. Someone standing there correcting his form, correcting him. Amateurs loathe correction. Professionals love correction. But today we're programmed to think that correction and offense are the same thing. They're not. Now, sometimes it can be done wrong, and it absolutely can be offensive. Don't get me wrong. But, but correction and offense, my friends, are not the same thing. Co to be corrected is not to be hated. It's not the same thing. Correction is not hateful by its very definition. It's helpful. Correct. Shun. To get correct, by very definition, it is correct. I heard it once said like this, the last day of a leader is the first day that he or she stops being a learner. The last day you will be a good leader is the day that you become unteachable. When you think there is no one that can correct you, we see people fall in business. We see people fall in ministry. It always comes down to this. They get to a point where they believe that they are beyond reproach. They cannot be corrected. The Holy Spirit is a great corrector. You cannot get to that point. As soon as you stop learning from God, as soon as you stop learning from other people, as soon as you start believing that you know it all, you are toast. That's just a fact of life. Here's another fact. Every single person, I'm just offended. Every single person is ignorant. I am ignorant. Every single person of, is ignorant just of different things. To think that I'm not ignorant. There are so many things that you could correct me on that are your profession, that are the thing that you studied, the thing that you have experience in. Every single person is ignorant just in different things, guys. But to be corrected is actually a good thing. To be corrected is actually a good thing unless, hear me when I say this, unless your motivation is not to actually be correct, to just look correct. If you care more about looking correct than actually being correct, then you will hate correction because you'll find it humiliating. So we gotta see, does that hold us? Do we hold on to that? Here's another one, we're almost there. Unmet expectations. We've all got them. It didn't happen before, so we start believing that it's not gonna happen again. The enemy loves to get you to put on repeat and put on replay and hold on to unmet expectations. We love to say God's no for him. It didn't work then, it's not gonna work now. Nope, why should I even try? I don't know why I'm saying this, but I feel this. There's someone in the room tonight, you just gotta ask that girl out. You just gotta ask her. If she says no to you, guess what? You'll still be single and alone, just like you are now. You just gotta ask her. Stop saying her answer for her. Now don't be creepy. If she says no, no means no. Don't DM her 77 more times. Get you in jail or arrested. Don't say your pastor told you to do that. We love though to say God's no for him. 
and hold on to the unmet expectations of the past. It didn't happen then. Why would I even ask God to make it happen now? We love to write our own verdict. But what you don't understand is that your life is not yet over. You don't know how God is going to work it out. You don't know how he's going to use it. In a court of law, I went to law school. I learned this right at the beginning. There are rules of evidence. There are rules to a trial. You've got to collect all the evidence, organize all the evidence, try the evidence. That means test the evidence for truth. And only then do you come up with a verdict. But in your life and in my life, what do I do? I like to write the verdict first and then look at all the evidence to support my verdict. Don't say God's no for him. That's a lie from the devil. The devil wants you to hold on to those unmet expectations and believe that they are final. Maybe you just haven't seen it yet. Maybe, how about this? Maybe he just has an expectation that is exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all that you could ever ask, think, or imagine for, and you think it's unmet. You just can't even ask, think, or imagine what he has for you. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's the truth, but my friends, the devil wants you to label it. He wants you to label it as done. He wants you to label it as over. Labels are a tool that the devil uses, but you don't get to label it. Only God gets to label it. This is another sermon that I love to preach, but you should understand that premature labels kill mature blessings. The type of blessings that God has for you are mature blessings. They're not little trinkets like a new car. They're the type of blessings that you will pass down to your children. Blessings like character, blessings like wisdom, blessings like healing and breakthrough and salvation. But those are mature blessings. The, de- the enemy wants you to put a premature label on it so that you will never let it grow to a mature blessing. And he will get you to hold on to the unmet expectations of your past so that you never see the mature blessing that God has for you. Unmet expectations are dangerous. The question to ask with unmet expectations is whose expectations are you holding on to? Are you holding on to your expectations or his? Because his expectations are great. He promises you great things. And if you hold on to those, the enemy has no chance. That's unmet expectations. Let's keep moving because I want to worship with Mac again. I'm not going to lie. He's awesome. Here's the fifth one. And this one affects all of us. Don't think for a minute that you're greater than the person next to you. We've all experienced this thing. This thing is called shame. The enemy will love to get you to hold on to shame. This notion that somehow something you did in your past precludes you from the blessing or breakthrough of God in the future. That's what shame is in the context of a believer. And the enemy wants you to hold on to shame tight, but have you ever read the Bible? I mean, have you looked at the type of people that God used to do the most incredible things in the Bible? I have looked long and hard, and the only perfect person I can find in the Bible goes by the name of Jesus Christ. Yet somehow you think you got to be perfect to be used by him, to be loved by him, to be blessed by him. God does not bless perfect people because that means he would bless no one. You don't have to be. I mean, look at the characters. Moses. Anyone heard of him? Put your hand up if you heard of Moses. Pharaoh, let my people go. 400 years of bondage and slavery. 
out, gone, miracles upon miracles. Moses was a murderer. Moses committed murder. Moses had a speech impediment, and he was called to speak to the most powerful man in the world. Yet you think God can't use you because you have shame in your past? I think God can't use me because I have some sort of disability? That's just Moses. Let's keep going. Noah. Noah got drunk. Jacob. Jacob was a liar. In fact, Jacob's name means deceiver. It means liar. He also was given a new name and a new identity in Christ. And you don't remember any of these people by the things that they have done because the scriptures do not paint them in that light. They paint them the way that God sees them. You got to learn to paint yourself the way that God sees you. Not hold on to the shame that the enemy wants you to hold on to. Noah, Joseph, Joseph was abused. Those who were called to love him, his own family, abused him. Sold him as a slave, tried to kill him. God did an amazing amazing thing through him. Rahab was a prostitute. Peter, the rock upon which we're going to build our church, Christ said, denied Christ not once, but three times. You don't have to be perfect to be used by God. How about this one? The last one I'll do. David, a man after God's own heart, the anointed one, committed adultery and murder. Anyone in here ever done that? It's a rhetorical question. Please keep your hand down if you have. All are welcome, but someone's going to slide over a seat if you do that. I ask that every season. It hasn't happened yet, but the point I've been trying to make is are you catching a theme with the type of people that God uses? Stop thinking he can't use you because you have this thing called shame and a past. We all got a past, man. God does not use perfect people. In fact, perfect people do not get into heaven. Forgiven people get into heaven. But the enemy wants you to hold on to that past. Let me tell you this. When the devil tells you to hold on to your past, you tell him to hold on to his future. That's what you got to tell him. Because you have a future, and it's a mansion in glory, and God's going to meet you there one day. His future looks a little bit different than that, my friends. But all those things... All those things, failure, offense, correction, unmet expectations, and shame, all those things still happen in life. They are unavoidable in life, and they hurt. I'm not trying to minimize them tonight. They hurt. In fact, they can be like swords with double-edged blades. They can cut you deep. Offense hurts. Failure hurts. Unmet expectations hurt. Shame keeps on hurting. They cut. You can't avoid them entirely in this life. So the question, the pertinent question to ask is this. If you have to have them, how will you hold them? What will you do with them? How will you hold them? These things, man, are not a joke. They are a sword, and they can either kill you, or with God's help, they can become your greatest weapon. And that's what I want for you tonight, is to no longer be marching towards death because of these things, but to be marching towards life and life more abundant, because that's what Christ wants for you. And you can have that. But here's the thing about a sword. 
Those things cut like a sword. And here's the thing about a sword. A sword is the worst thing possible if you are met with the blade. Violent, painful, cutting, deep. But if you are met with the handle of a sword, it can be one of your greatest assets. You can defend yourself. You can attack the enemy. The question is, what do you hold? Do you hold on to the blade of offense and grip it? Or do you hold on to the handle of that sword? Do you get a handle on it? That's the question. When you lay your head to rest tonight on your pillow, which one will you hold? Because today you probably failed or you were probably offended or you were probably corrected, you had an unmet expectation or you have something to be ashamed of. Which one are you going to hold tonight? Are you going to hold on to the blade and clinch it and grip more tightly and let that hold your attention? Because that's what the enemy wants for you. The enemy wants you to just keep squeezing that blade so it keeps cutting your tired hand until he gets every single drop of blood, blood which is life, every single drop out of you until there's nothing left. He doesn't want offense to be a one-time thing. He wants it to run your life. But you have a choice to grip the blade or to get a handle on it. It's a question of grip, my friends. It's a question of grip. Anyone here play golf? Where are my golfers at? Tennis, put your hand up. Keep your hands up. Basketball, let me see. I want to get everybody in this. Piano, stop putting your hands up. Keep your hands up. All right. All those things, you know what step one, the most important thing is? It's your grip. If you don't hold the club right, you have no possibility of hitting a good golf shot. If you don't know how to hold the basketball and grip it properly, you have no hope of making a three-pointer. Your grip is everything. How you hold something determines how you can use it. I've been golfing since I was five years old, and I still suck. It's bad, but I got a lesson and I got corrected by someone who knows more than me. And you know what the first thing he did? He went, oh, that was actually the first thing he did. But then the first thing he did that was beneficial to me is he said, Ryan, you got to change your grip. And he moved my hands over completely and it felt awkward and weird. And I said, there's no way I can do it like this for 10 shots, for 20 shots, for 50 shots. But after 100 shots, the ball started going straight and my score started going lower. And I started getting better. I needed an adjustment to my grip. I was never going to get better gripping it the way that I was. That's what he told me. There was a better way. There was a new grip. Hebrews 12, 12. There was a new grip. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weakness. My friends, it is exhausting in this life holding on to offense. Holding on to your past failures is exhausting and depressing and isolating is what the enemy wants. But God has a word for you tonight that it's time for a new grip. Somebody say, new grip. It's time that you get a new grip. Because for every blade of offense, every sword of unmet expectations that is coming your way, there is a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, as said in Ephesians chapter 6, 17, there is a sword of the Spirit with an answer for that cut that came into your life. 
There is a way to grip it from the Word of God, a way to hold on to it. There is a sword that is sharper than any blade of offense or any shame or any failure. And it's given to you in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active. It's not a dead book from thousands of years ago, y'all. It is living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and then the intentions of the heart. For every single cut of those five things, there is a handle in the form of his word to discern your thoughts and the intentions of your heart to show you exactly how to handle it. We're almost done, but I got to prove it to you. I can't leave you without proving it to you. Every time you're met with failure, check what Psalm 73, 26 says. My flesh and my heart may fail, but my God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's okay that you failed. You got a God who is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. But it doesn't stop there. Every offense that happens in your life, Proverbs 19 says this, Good sense makes someone slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Say, drop it. Drop it. That's the grip you need when it comes to that one. you got to drop it. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Correction is not a bad thing when it's from your maker. Correction is a good thing. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Perfuse are the kisses of an enemy. You ever heard of the term, beware of a flatterer? Your enemy who kisses you to flatter you and make you feel good? No, no, no. No. Blessed, faithful, and blessed are the wounds of a friend. A friend who corrects you loves you. A friend who corrects you out of love loves you, but it's not done there. The Word of God has more. Unmet expectations. Psalm 62, 5. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. It might not happen the way I think it's going to happen, but it's going to happen the way it needs to happen, because He's the one on the throne of my life. My expectations are of Him, they're not of me. How about this one? Psalm 27, 13. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, even if my expectations are met. These are the type of things that you got to hold on to, not what the enemy wants you to hold on to. Shame. Last one, Psalm 103:12. As far as the east is from the west, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That means they can't be farther. You gotta stop living your life trying to drive through the rearview mirror. God has blessed you with a windshield. You won't get out of the parking lot with a rearview mirror. Next one, Isaiah 61:7. Someone, this is for someone specifically in the room tonight. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Somebody needs to get ready because God is gonna give you double for all of your trouble. My friends, when it comes to all of these things, it's all a question 
of the title of this sermon, What Do You Hold? Where do you look? Because that's where you will go. What holds your attention? But better put like this, what holds your focus? Is it failure? Offense? Correction on met expectations and shame? Is that your focus? Because that's the enemy's plan. If he can keep your focus there, he knows he has a chance. Which one do you hold? The blade to just keep getting cut and squeezed more and more tight? Or do you get a new grip? Do you handle it with the sword of the spirit? Which one do you hold? God is saying to you tonight that it's time to stop focusing on that and to start focusing on me. God is saying you don't have to bleed anymore. Someone in this room has been gripping on to their past failure and they can't let go and they don't know why. There is a why and it is the word of God. He has an answer for every single one of those things. Would you stand to your feet? Because you're going to get a chance as we go back into worship in just a moment. Not just to sing another song. Not just to sing our 598th worship song here at the river, which is what it is. Not a routine thing. You're going to get a chance to get a new grip on those things that have happened to you. On your failures. You get to make a choice. You get to choose your weapon, the blade or the handle. And I don't know about you, but I'm done holding the blade. Tonight I'm grabbing it by the handle. You need to handle these things, my friends, because I promise you, if you don't, they will handle you. So tonight, the question is this, what do you hold? That was the title. But the better question that I want to leave you with is what holds you? What holds you? Is it those five things? Or is it this, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 20, the last verse of the night. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. Anyone tonight want to be held up? What holds you? It no longer should be failure. It no longer should be offense. You got to drop it. Correction is a good thing. Stop letting it cut you down. Unmet expectations are just opportunities for God to do more than you could think, ask, or imagine. Shame has been cast as far as the east is from the west. Stop letting those things hold you and let his victorious right hand hold you up because it is victorious. It is 999,000 and 0 against the enemy and your situation will not be the thing that makes God lose for the first time. He has done it before and he will do it again. He says, don't be afraid for I am with you. Last thing before we worship. It's nice preaching, but I don't know your story. I don't know the failure. I don't know the offense. Preacher, you're saying drop it. 
can't drop it. How do I drop what my dad did to me? This wasn't a comment about a bad haircut. I'm not saying it's easy. I don't know the fire that you find yourself in. But I do know this. There is another in the fire with you. There is a fourth in the fire. And I know that he is willing. And I know that he is able. But even if he doesn't, I know that he is still good. And that he is still for you. And that he still loves you. My friends, there is another in your fire. Never forget that. But it's time tonight to get a new grip. Stop holding the blade. Get a grip. There's another in the fire.